Hey, hey, Syndication Mentoring Club, it's time for another edition of the monthly George Ross Mastermind. Well, welcome, everybody. We're here for the George Ross Mastermind call, and this is Russell Gray standing in for Victor Menashe, who's enjoying a well-deserved vacation. And so I'm super excited to be here with you today, and George is here on the line with us. For those of you who may not know, George Ross is a very accomplished, uh, probably legendary real estate attorney mm-hmm. in the city of New York. He worked with Donald Trump back when Donald Trump was Mr. Real Estate Mogul and not Mr. President, and they did a lot of deals together. And even before that, he had George had done many, many deals independent of his relationship with Mr. Trump. So he's got a ton of experience, real-world experience. He's got a great, practical, no-nonsense approach. You're going to love hearing from George. We've got a number of people on the line who are going to be asking questions. So it's my job to kick the thing off. And so, George, I'd like to start out with a comment that uh, actually came from me because I noticed that President Trump, now President Trump, rolled back a portion of the Dodd-Frank Act and with the intention of making it easier for smaller community regional banks to get back in the game of real estate if they originate less than 500 mortgages a year. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what your perspective is on the impact of that on real estate investors, smaller developers, getting these smaller lenders or community lenders kind of back in the game again. Pros, cons, you think it's going to make the space? Uh, no, I think, it's, I think it's great. The reason was that there was so much regulation that went on as a result of Dodd-Frank that smaller banks, community banks or what have you, just couldn't – the paperwork was impossible to keep up with. It just wasn't worth doing the loans. Right. So as a reload, what happened, they just stayed out of the market, which is ridiculous because the market was available for larger lenders, but for smaller lenders, it wasn't there because it wasn't worthwhile for them to do it. Now, with eliminating or repealing some of the, the all of the paperwork that's due with Dodd-Frank, it has made it available for these smaller lenders to now compete in local areas. And that's great for a local builder because you can get a local bank in the area that's familiar with the area and they can make decisions which big banks wouldn't make because they, they're, they're usually too general. So it's, it's a great source, and I think that's something that anyone that's involved in real estate should take advantage of to, give, to, advise, you know, to, to go to various banks and say, are you interested in making these kinds of loans? What are you doing? And just familiarize himself. And I think it's a whole new source, which is a long time coming. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I'm excited about it. I have a background in the mortgage business and, you know, I think a lot of the problems that were caused in the lending industry happened from people who really weren't underwriting the loans very well. They really didn't care. They were going to package them up, flip them to Wall Street. That's right. That's right. That's the answer was the answer. You're absolutely right. The big problem that came up with, with the mortgages, which were underwater, if you want to call them underwater, was that the banks that were writing it were not writing it to keep the mortgage. They were writing it to bank it and sell it to somebody else. So they were intermediaries. All they were interested in is getting fees. And that right. really had, a, had a horrendous impact on the because all of a sudden, somebody who ended up with the mortgage didn't write the mortgage, didn't know it was, was relying upon information they had from somebody that was an intermediary. And that was horrendous because the intermediary didn't care what the value of the property was or what the mortgage was. And as a result, at that point, you ended up with all these horrendous mortgages, which, which, which later on created a chaos. So that was, that was terrible. And that was really a major problem. And a lot of smaller banks got involved with it, but not to a great, not, not to great much because they were cut off by the effect of uh, Dodd-Frank, which required a certain tremendous amount of information, 
which the smaller banks today, I, I don't do that that much. It isn't worth it. The advantage I get from being able to write these loans is not worth the, the, the paperwork in, in showing to the government or convincing the government I know what I'm doing. So I think this is a major, major help in permitting small investors to get loans from community banks or smaller banks that are familiar with an area and they can get an attractive rate. And the smaller banks basically now can compete in mortgage lending where, they, where there's good fee to be made and they don't have to worry as much about the government oversight. Yeah, so it ends up being good for the banks. It ends up being good for their depositors. And obviously, it ends up being good for the real estate investors who are going to be able to tap in to that source of funds. I've got one quick little follow-up exactly on that. Exactly right. Got one quick little follow-up on that. And that is the, you know, you read Donald's book about the art of the comeback and the relationship he had with bankers. You know, again, when I was in the mortgage business, I was mm-hmm. underwriting to strict guidelines. Either you fit in the box or you didn't. Is it right. fair to say that this new rollback is going to make it easier for lending to be a little bit more relationship-based, even at a smaller level? It should be relationship-based. You're getting right on the head. It will make it easier. And that's what it should be. There should be some type of a relationship between the, the borrower and the lender where they trust each other and they can do it. And if there's a, if they can do make a loan. And if there is a problem, they can figure out how to solve the problem. And it's not just cut and dried on, on monetary aspects. Absolutely. That's it's great. Banking as it used to be. Well, good. I was excited when I saw it and I'm glad to see or hear that you see it the same way. Absolutely. All right, so the next question here is from Victor, who's uh, currently in Europe, and he can't be on the call, as we've already talked about, so I get to ask the question. It has to do with the tariffs. So recently imposed tariff on Canadian softwood lumber has increased the market price for construction lumber by about 25% in just the last two months. Obviously, that's had a huge impact on the cost of new construction, and that's on top of nearly 20% increase in home construction costs over the last 24 months. Now, the good news is market prices have risen in several areas and it's still made new construction profitable, but the duties are being imposed also now on steel, which is another key construction material. And so what Victor's struggling with is the difficulty in planning projects that span multiple years when you're dealing with these moving targets of costs. So his question for you, George, is as someone with development experience, what advice would you have for someone who's undertaking projects in this kind of an environment? Well, it's the same thing. When you say this kind of an environment, it's always been that environment. There are always been, with forget tariffs, there have always been situations involving construction materials where they basically vary from month to month or times to time to time, depending upon local areas, depending on the local areas, depending on or the supply. So if you if you have a shortage of lumber, you're going, the price is going to go up. If you have an overabundance of lumber, the price may go down. And the same thing with steel or anything. These are just costs of construction and they figure in and they will always vary. And it really has nothing to do. I mean, you can say tariffs are going to do it. But overall, if you figure out the, the cost of building a house or, or the construction of any building that you're building and you take into account the fact that it's, yeah, well, this is your, your cost of lumber is going to be X and your cost of the steel is going to be Y. And if you add it all together, therefore, the total cost of the, the house is going to be a combination. As long as the market is there and there are, uh, there's, there's, are people that will buy it, it's lost. It's lost in the transaction. It is, well, you know, the fact that the cost of the house may cost us, say, say it cost me another $25,000 because of the increased cost. So I have to raise, raise the ultimate sale price by $25,000. If the economy is good and people have the money, yes, 
they will buy it, pay it. This happens with inflation. Every time rates prices go up, people don't stop buying as long as at this point they afford it. And if the if the economy is good and people are making more money, the answer is yes, they will do it. One of the problems that you have in any major construction is the delay from the time you conceive it and you put your money in until the time you sell it or get money back in one way or another. The longer the gap, the more risky it is. You can go and you can start with a project that's going to take three years to complete. And at the time you start, the market is great. But three years later, the market went down. No, you, that's a, a hazardous problem. But what happens in three years if the market stayed the same or went up? That's the risk of building over, over a long period of time. You can't, you can't avoid the risk. You have to hope that things will be at least as good or better than they were when you first started it. That's a risk that you run. And uh, the longer the construction period, the bigger the problem. Yeah, that's a, that's the cost of doing business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can relate to it again, coming out of the mortgage business and you have fluctuating, you know, rates and we would use rate locks and things to try to control the volatility when you're in there trying to make sure somebody qualifies. But of course, we only had to lock it in for 30 days, 60 days or whatever it yeah. was. No, I, it, it's, it's true. I have to tell you at this point, I, I work on a, a, a building that I did basically for Donald Trump and we were buying $2 million worth of steel from South America. And the guy who is supplying it says this bid is good for thirty for for two hours for two hours <laughs> a two million dollar bid. He says I'll meet the price for two hours, but after that we have to talk again. The price was just going going wild. But imagine you you got to figure out to buy two million dollars worth of product and you got two hours to make up your mind. But this is what happens in certain in certain areas depending upon what's going on. If you have to take that into uh, into account when you have any product that, that, that's part of your construction and it's going to cost you to do it, you can program it. But unless you sign sign it up and get it delivered at this, you haven't gotten it. They say this is the price. We'll give it to you. But if you look at all the contracts for construction materials, they all have an out saying subject to market conditions or what. You know, it's 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 not firm unless you make it firm, and then you got to put up your money and sign to sign it up. But uh, but that's the nature of the business. Well, that's that's just a great. Can't avoid it. That's a great perspective because, you know, I've forgotten, you know, you read about tariffs as being something relatively new, at least on the national awareness and this price volatility. But your point after decades is it's always been there. It's always been volatile. I, I remember in, in the well, it's not, you know, it's not only tariffs. It's not only tariffs at that point. But you've had shortage of material. Yeah, exactly. It's just not available. That's yeah, I did. They yeah. came on where, with raw materials or, or if you have to do, I mean, take somebody what was, was they were finishing lumber and all of a sudden, the, the main supplier had stopped but out of business or the manufacturer went out of, out of business at that point. Well, the price is going to change dramatically. Well, yeah. Hurricane Andrew blew a, blew a budget for me on a project I was doing in the early nineties sure. because you couldn't, yep. you know, all the price of lumber du- doubled. Yeah. And it doubled re- well, almost overnight. Yep. I remember. Because what happened, it's supply and demand. That's all. If the supply goes down and demand goes up, they're going to, your price is going to, going to go up. Why not? Because it becomes competitive. Somebody else will say, I'll pay $25 for this. And somebody says, I'll pay $35. you got to get it for him. And all of a sudden, you have a bidding war for materials, and the prices go out of sight. Got it. Okay, very good. The uh, next question here is from Matthew. Matthew, are you on the line? Yes, Russ, I'm here. Perfect. All right. Well, go ahead and ask your question to Mr. Ross. Hey, George, how are you? I am fine, Matthew. What's up? we got a two-part question here. Patrick Trahan and myself we're undertaking an ambitious project of a condo hotel just outside of Banff, Alberta. It's an area that gets approximately 6.5 million visitors a year. I'm familiar with the area. It's a great area. That's beautiful. I've been there. 
I haven't yet, but uh, everyone keeps telling me I gotta go there. <laughs> you haven't been there, and you're looking to invest. Looking at the numbers, go over the numbers are. <laughs> no, don't go over the numbers. You better get real estate projects are not numbers; they're places. Well, Pat, Patrick has been there, and Victor has been there, and they both told me it's good to go. So okay, uh, I'm tr- I'm trusting them. <laughs> That's good. Demand is really strong for a new construction. New construction is scarce. Land is hard to get. We're about to get a key 5.5 acre property under contract to build a luxury 300 room condo hotel. Mm-hmm. We'll need a strong partner to complete the project. We don't have the capital nor the development ex- experience. Could it sound a little bit like the Commodore Hotel? How would you suggest we enlist the right people to set up for success? The market doesn't have any major tier one brands either. Should we work with a brand as a development partner or should we focus on finding the independent partner who has a hotel development experience and then seek a hotel franchise? Well, I got let's put it this way. I have to commend you first for the fact that you're, you're, you're planning this endeavor with a minimal of experience and a minimal amount of money. I mean, to me, well, you, you're talking about a condo hotel. That's, that's <laughs> a, that operation is a hazard unto itself where you, do, where you don't have the expertise. So I have to commend you at least for uh, saying, yeah, let's go into it. But I also have to have the reservation that you're just underqualified and you don't have the, the people or the, the partners that are qualified to do it. And you, that's what you're first li- li- lining up. So, you know, when you came to the Commodore Hotel, it was just rebuilding it. Donald was in the construction business, so he knew what it was going to be to run a hotel, to, to build a hotel. Yeah. Now, beyond that, he was ready to build a hotel, and the, the main problem was that when we first went into the into the project, one of the banks that was loaning, the planning on loaning the money, said they said, came out and said, "Trump, what do you know about running a hotel?" And he said nothing. And they said, "Well, if he can get a reputable hotel operator to interested, we'll talk again." Figuring they'd never hear from him. So now what you okay. have to do was was to get a a reputable hotel operator which you got hired, but you had to put all the pieces together to show them that it was something that could make money. They were interested in building a hotel and having a hotel in Manhattan at this, but why this site? So he had to show them how the pieces could be put together to buy the property or the railroad and everything else. Now, that expertise that was supplied, he got experts that were involved that said, yes, we can do it. So you had the city involved. And they would give him certain benefits. So you had the federal, the United the States, the state government that would give him rights of eminent domain, filled in some of the pieces. And he had the courage to do it. But would I, would I suggest that somebody do that now? No. It's just, it's just too complicated. And then you're running it one first. A condo hotel. <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, that's, a, that's another twist. If you, somebody's running a hotel, good. That uh, when I say you can run a hotel, so you could get a major, or you could get a, get Hyatt, or you can get the Hilton or some of the others. Good. If you had that hotel, we would rent it out from you, or we would run it on some type of a basis. We would run it on a basis that we get a, we get a certain fee to run it, and you get all the income. But who is what? And that's complicated. In other words, unless you say, hey, hey, here, we'll build a, I'll, I'll build a hotel, or the hotel will be built, and we'll lease you the entire hotel. And we get a certain rent from uh, on an annual basis from the operator of the hotel to do that. That is one way of doing it. When you want to turn it into a condo, that's a whole different ballgame. Because on a condo, you want to sell the units of the hotel to individual investors. And it becomes, then while the units are not being used by the individual investors, they are become rooms or units that can be used for hotel. That's a whole different situation. And boy, it's complex. Because it's a now, question of how you're running, a, what kind of a, a, a hotel is it going to be? Five stars, four stars, three stars? Is it going to have full service? Who's going to run it? It's a whole different ballgame. 
and it's, and it's very complicated. So I know what I am, uh, what I appreciate is the enthusiasm which you're going on a project which you really don't know know very little about in an area you, you told us where it doesn't exist. You told us where it doesn't exist. No, we understand it's, it's zone four. We talked to the town, uh, the municipality, the council. They're on board. We of recognize course. some of the needs. They really want it. Of course. We but have, I, you know, let me tell you this point. Where, where do you, what, what are you, what are you using as a, as your, your counterpart that's, that makes you think that this is going to work? That you're going to be able to sell these units at a price? Are there any other units in the area which are in fact being sold? There's 18. 18 at the moment. 18 units that are for sale. 18 units that are for sale out of how many? They can't, 700 or so. So somebody else have. has built them? Yes. It's a very common right. thing in the tourist area. In Canada, in, in Canada, in certain parts of Canada. And good. Do you have any? Do you have any? If you have the numbers and show that it works, then you may be able to convince an investor that that's the right place to go. And I'm not. I'm not putting cold water on your project. I think it it, it has the ability to be a great pro, uh, the, the capability of being a great project. I think Banff is wonderful. It's a great tourist area, and I think the the idea of a of a condo hotel properly run could work very well, although you are restricted because the weather is going to be a problem in usage of, of uh, hotel rooms at a point in time. It's not like you're going to use it every day of the year. You're going to, the weather is going to have something to do with it. So it's it's I, I appreciate what you're trying to accomplish, but it's it, it's something that I would look carefully into. And if you can get the, the, the information from the other hotel operators or somebody that can give you the, the facts and the figures of what you can expect in, in leasing, in selling units on a per square foot basis, what the unit has to cost to build, and in addition, what you can probably get if you, what you could get if you rented it out, how many rentals do you have on, for what period of time and over what period of time. See, I did this one. For the, the the Trump International Hotel in New York, mm -hmm. it's a condo. All right, now and the units, the lower units at this point are rental become rental units. People buy them, and the people buy them, and when they're not there, they don't use them. They're, they're part of the hotel, and they get whatever rent they get goes to the owner of the unit. But the all of the the the, the hotel or the unit holders, and there just were some of them at this. All of the unit holders at this point have to support. The operation of the hotel, so that yeah. all the fixed expenses that were involved to the hotel are, are passed off to all the unit owners, all fixed. So if the hotel is occupied 100%, fine. If it's not occupied 100%, no problem. The expenses are covered. And then when the units are in fact rented out, the owner gets the owner of that unit gets like 100, gets pretty close to 100% of the rent or, or the, the the charges to the daily charges for that particular unit. Now that's fine. Uh, when I say that, yeah, but it also depends. It works if, in the event that you're going to have a good, good degree of occupancy. And if yeah. for this one was in New York on, uh, you know, near Columbus Circle, yeah, you know, you're going to have a good occupancy because it's yeah. that area at this point. But New York, you can have, you can people will go around to, you know, your 365 days. Somebody's there. Also, your major purchases of the units happen to be foreign companies that wanted to have a place for their, their personnel to stay when they were in New York. So rather than rent unit, rent, a, rent a hotel room somewhere at this point, said we're to buy one and keep it, I know I have it, and then we get a certain amount of income because this is going to be used as a, as a hotel. So having said all that, at this, what, you're, what you're suggesting or what you're undertaking is a major undertaking 
it has some, a lot of problems that are involved and in. I wouldn't put cold water on it, but boy, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a bitch to do. <laughs> so it's more, so we're looking at getting more of a challenge. That's what you're saying. It's, it's, it's more of a challenge, right? We uh, we've got it's a lot of, of market challenge. research. Done. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be. Let's put it this way: if you were selling the condo units outright, that to me is not as much of a challenge. But on the other hand, when you say you're going to turn it into a hotel, a condo hotel, that's a bigger challenge, bigger challenge, and therefore people would be more likely to buy units because you have them as a hotel. Now, and also the services or hotel are great. In other words, one yes. of the things that made the, made the, the Trump Tower facility work is you had a five-star restaurant down there. We had a five-star restaurant. So if somebody was wanted to cater a party in their apartment, they could have a five-star chef cater it. And it really resonated with the, with wealthy people. But you got a well, different see, that's area. What we're sort of... in, well, you got a different area at this point. This is a vacation area. It's beautiful. Yes. And, bam. and... it's, it's a different locale. I'm, what I'm saying is that if you get as much information as you can and you think it works and you can get somebody to back it up and you can put some numbers together in a model and you have reasonable expectancy that the thing is going to, is going to work and you put it together and you spend the time, God bless you. I hope it works. It's a good idea. It's just got a lot of, a lot of, of uh, problems involved because of the nature of what you're planning on doing and building and the area it's in. And I'm not demeaning Banff by any means. No, no. <laughs> it's, I mean, we know you, you want to take you want to take a look and say at this point now, you say fine that you take in this area in in the United States. Hey, you've got Aspen, Colorado, right? And you've got a whole you've got the he tell you ride and a whole bunch of where the numbers are fantastic. Now, but those are mostly individual units. I don't know anyone at that point that's going to do it on the basis to build a multiple, to build a big, big building on a condo and, you know, a condo hotel basis. But it's because that's the nature of the area. It's a vacation area. Exactly. It's not, it's not one there. But God bless you. Good luck. All right. <laughs> Thanks, George. Um, good job. Good job, Matthew. Thank you, George. So let's get this next question in because we've got a lot of questions here. It's going to be great. This next question comes from Christine in Las Vegas. Christine, are you on the line? Christine. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to come back to that one. If she shows up, Gretchen, let me know. Okay. Next question is, it comes from Sia. Sia, are you on the line? All right. Even if she's not on the line, the question that I got, and I've got to get Kasha to give me, it's a good question. Yeah. Okay. And um, I think I we can go over, the, kind of go over the concept, maybe right. not to Sia at this point, because it's, it's, it's not the, con- the, the question that she raised is not, not tied to a particular product or a particular building. It's applied to the fact that this is an employee situation. What happens as an employer if all of a sudden you got a disgruntled employee who is about to badmouth you either in the in the press or what have you and affect your reputation? That's basically the nature of the question. Yeah, I'll, so I'll it's, not, it's not limited to a particular area or particular person. Yeah, so I'll I'll go ahead and get the question out on the table, George, so that everybody can hear it. The sure. Way she- she says, as an employer, how do I protect myself against disgruntled employees who I let go, particularly against online slander? I've got an employee who's a top performer but is violating ethics. She's decided, I think it's a she, I've decided to terminate employment as a result. He's threatened to have customers write bad reviews online. Their business depends heavily on social proof, and online reputation reviews are vital to their standing in the market. What can they do to protect themselves? Well, that's it. How do you protect yourself against blackmail? Isn't that the question? Yeah. Yeah, well, isn't that the question? How do you protect yourself against blackmail? 
that somebody now is going to de defame your product at this point for the purpose of getting money. Now, the answer is very simple at this point to go with it. It's You can't eliminate it, an unhappy employee, but when you fire someone at this, you ought to do it on some type of a basis where it's not such a horrendous situation that they go away that mad. So you give them some kind of severance pay or whatever it is, and you get a, from them an agreement that not they will not discuss anything that, they, that was available or they learned in the operation, in their position in your organization. Right. So it's a non-disclosure agreement, and you say, fine, here it is. I'm going to give you severance pay or give you two, two months salary, whatever it is, and go go away, but go away happy. And unfortunately, what it is, it's blackmail. Yeah. And you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. If somebody wants to slander, and they have so many areas where you have Instagram and all of the others and, and all of the various media outlets which are available, and once it's there, you can't get it off. Because if you notice, they say, write a review. And somebody writes a review. So now they're going to revive it. Is it a customer? Yes, I used this person's product. It was terrible. Or I... I, I tried to do business with them and I couldn't get answers. Whatever it is, they slander, and you never get it off. Does it make sense, George? Does it make sense to you know engage them in that forum? Usually, places like that give you the opportunity to put in some. You type can of engage them, but that doesn't eliminate it. Right. It's a question: of Who wants to believe? In other words, wants to wants to believe. So you, yeah, you can defend it and say no, it wasn't true or anything else. But never the fact that it was out there. Somebody slandered your your reputation wrongfully. And you can defend it and say that, no, this wasn't it. And you can put everything you want. But the fact that the allegation was there is what counts. If you look to a, as, a, as an analogy, which is not true, but look at all of these sexual abuse claims. They're all alleged. But look at the effect. Right. It's not a question of whether it happened. It's a question of they're alleged to have happened and everybody believes them. And that creates the problem on the reputation. So what I hear you saying is better just to try to end the relationship on a high note. Oh, end it. Uh, that's right. In other words, when you, before you fire the person or what it is, say, look, I'm not happy with uh, with the job that you're doing. You're paid getting too much. You're not happy with it. I'm not happy with it. At this, let's part, but let's part on a friendly basis. So I'm going to give you give you some some two two weeks pay, two months pay, whatever it is, or some some benefits at this. With an understanding in, that you will, in writing, say good. You will not, you are, you will not, under any circumstances, disclose anything that was involved with your position in this organization, in with the, with the media, in writing or in the media or anything else. That's great. Very good. But if you do, if you do at that point, then you're subject to penalties. Would would that be like a liquidated damages clause in the contract? Yeah, liquidated. It's not liquidated damages. It's just a yes. It's it's paying off the hush money. Gotcha. Okay. We don't like the saying it's hush money, but it happens. Yeah. And it happened in a, happened in one of my radio stations where there was a, a woman there and I knew she was totally incompetent and did a terrible job. I know when we, when we fired her, we're going to end up with a, with a, a claim, a discrimination claim. And sure enough, we fired a discrimination that she couldn't operate because the, it was a male dominated working area. And she filed an unfair employment practice. Well, she had lawyers and everything else. Finally, we settled it, but you couldn't stop it. it. Just wasn't worth. Whether you win it, you lose it. Another one of the okay. many costs of doing business. You got it on the nose. Yep. Okay. Let's jump back up to Christina's question or Christine's question. Then one more chance. Christine, you on the line? Yes. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I can Great. hear you, Christine. <laughs> yeah, I can unmute myself. Hi. 
Christine, go ahead and ask George. Okay. Hi, George. I'm in negotiation hi. to acquire. Hi. <laughs> I'm in negotiation to acquire a senior day activity center in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Great. It's located. Yeah, it's located predominantly a Chinese part of the city and largely services senior citizens in the Chinese community. Mm-hmm. The business model is either we pick up or families drop off their parents just for the day for elder care activities and socialization. So right now the business generates $1.3 million in net income per year and operates five, day, five days per week. So we can grow the revenue by adding weekend services. Uh, the seller is asking what I believe to be a premium for the real estate and for the business, but he is willing to take back some paper. Mm-hmm. The real estate's being sold for $3.5 million which comes out to about 291 a square foot. So this is premium for the market. And he's asking $6 million for the business, which mm-hmm. seems high. You know, right. I believe the business should be, you know, more value is around three times the multiple of the net income or approximately mm-hmm. $4 million. He yeah. does seem pretty fir- firm on his price. He has turned down other buyers because he felt they would not, you know, be a good fit for running the business. But mm-hmm. I believe that he trusts me to operate the business well. How do you suggest I negotiate with the seller? I don't want to pay too much. Okay. Well, how about considering the following at that point? That you're willing, assuming the net the net income is at a certain level or reaches a certain certain level at that point, that you give you increase the amount that you're going to pay to the to the seller, so you get some kind of bonus if you're doing very well. If it works, right, he's fine. So he would have a participation in your growth if the growth growth is there. So he would have to have faith that you're going to do what what you're coming up with basically works, but he's taking some of the risk off because if it doesn't work, you don't have to. You're not stuck with a higher with the higher valuation, which you can't, which you think is, is improper now. So it's like an incentive basis, which is not unusual in many transactions, and certainly is not unusual in with this type of a transaction that you're talking about. Many times it's whether to you have a situation where uh, the rents are based on a certain basic number, but in the event that the sales from that unit become greater than they had anticipated, the the landlord is entitled to get more money. Not unusual. But why not uh, do it in this situation? Why? I think that could work. And you know, if he's satisfied that you know what you're doing, and it sounds to me like you're, you're pretty well along those lines, that mm-hmm. he could make a lot more money doing that than he would be making if he just increased the price now. Okay, so just make an offer contingent on future growth. Okay. Yeah, not future growth, but you got to show him not contingent on this. You show him that it's going to get more than he's anticipating. Okay. In other words, now you can come up, especially where you're saying that you're planning on increasing the the hours, or you go you're going. So now instead of going you're eliminating weekends, you're going to put on weekends. You can come up with a spreadsheet that shows how much money you're going to make as a result of this extra hours that are involved, and it's going to be mm-hmm. beautiful. And they say, fine, so he's going to give you a certain percentage of, of what you're grading, what you're grossing, or what you're netting as a result of those extra hours at this point. You're going to give him an opportunity, an opportunity what it's going to look at, it's going to be a lot more than what he's talking about. Okay. In other words, the, the, you understand, so it looks good. That the, yes. The, so you can show, hey, here's what you're getting. But now with this new situation, you could make another, another million dollars a year first, or a million, million and a half. So the pie in the sky might might very well work. Okay, sounds great. Thank you. Hey, Christine, you had you had mentioned to me on this particular situation that other people were coming along, and part of their offer was making him stay on board, and he was resistant to that, right? 
Yes, he's he's not he hasn't been confident that too many people can take over and operate the business well. But he he said he does have that confidence that I can do that. That is a that's a big help. Yeah, it is. If he has if he has the confidence, that's fine, and that certainly fits in with what I'm suggesting, Christine. If he has the confidence, Mm -hmm. and you're now expanding the hours of operation, the income should should go up dramatically because you'd be handling weekends, and that so if he has confidence in your ability, and you're saying fine, then he figures good. The increase that he'd get, or the discrepancy between what you what he's asking and what you think it's worth, which is about two million, is that at that point could be covered by the share of the profit. Okay. So I think it works. Nice. All right. Thank you. Good. Thanks, Christine. Uh All right. So next question is also from this one's from Victor, and of course Victor's not here, so I'll ask it on his behalf. He's got a project in Louisiana. It's probably talked about it on the calls before, where all the permits have been granted. The construction is more than 50% completed. So all permits have been granted. Construction is more than 50% completed. The city has had a municipal election, and there was a new city council and a new set of bureaucrats. And these new bureaucrats are asking for new requirements to be met that had previously been waived on the project that's already been permitted. And those very same requirements were examined during the original permitting process. So mm-hmm. the city ultimately has the power to block the project by not granting the occupancy permit. They kind of have Victor over a barrel a little bit. And his question is, what tools does he have as a developer to protect himself and his investors? Does he just roll over and cave, or does he fight back? And if so, how aggressively? Okay, but that's a good question. I mean, the change of municipality rules are uh, happen on a uh, not a, not a regular basis, but certainly it's not unheard of. However, once he's got the original permits at that uh, to build it, and he starts and you get into construction, you're already grandfathered in. They if they if they try to change the rules to get a, a certificate of occupancy, at that that's, they can't do that. The courts won't permit them to do that. So they can claim this is what it is. It's nice if they hold it up. It's a delay, but they're not ultimately going to be successful. You're going to win. Gotcha. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, you're basically coming up with a problem or seeing a problem which, pre- which doesn't presently exist, but you think it does exist because of the change in the, in the administration and not necessarily. However, once if you try to change what you're doing to comply with the new regulations, you're, op- you're opening a whole Pandora's box because they will say, well, okay, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, which is based on their new philosophy or the new administration, but wasn't there when you originally applied for it. So, okay, so, so, so would that be like you're basically implying that you're accepting the new situation by your actions? To, and, 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 you, and, no, you would, you would be if you change it. Gotcha. Okay. You know, if you don't change it, it's, it's fine. But if you do change it, that's, then, then once they say, okay, if you, if you said that you'd go along with this, with, with problem with situation A, which we like, how about B, C, and D? And this is, this situation came up on a, uh, on a major project, particularly the Trump World Tower, which is in Manhattan. At this, he had the right to build a 90 story building. And he did. No zoning, no variance or anything. Later on, they said that they tried to stop it. And say no, you can't do it because it's going to it's going to dwarf other areas. It's a, the zoning wasn't to visit, wasn't wasn't to cover this type of a situation, and they tried to stop it. And Donald, we were already in construction, and it, it finally went on. And the judge says, look, he didn't do anything wrong. He's building in accordance with what the law was at the time he started the construction. The fact that you changed it doesn't make a difference 
as far as this particular building is concerned. And he said, if you want to stop, you can stop the next building, but you can't stop this one because it's already it's a grandfathered in. That's the situation which you have here. Once you're grandfathered, they can threaten, but it's not, you know, you're going to win, maybe costly. But certain things you can do, you may be helpful. And cert- it was certainly in the... Uh, uh, as far as the Trump Tower is concerned, the city wanted, wanted some entrances put away and the park, put your parking in a different place. Even though you'd already filed the plans, you say, okay, good. If that makes you happy, we won't have cars coming out on First Avenue. They'll come out on the side street or certain other, other buildings you have where they wanted a park area. You say, okay, I can build a park area. And, you, you know, you can, you can be helpful, but you're not bound by it. It's something you're doing because you want to ease tensions with the municipality but not something that you legally would be required to do. Gotcha. So basically go about your business because you're already permitted. Smile. If they come at you, just be prepared yes. to assert your rights. Be and prepared. if it, you may not, you're, you're dreaming of something that may not happen. Exactly. But okay. it comes up at that point. They may say, they, they probably say, look, look, Hey, this was, this is past history. We're, we're coming in now on new construction. This is old construction. Very as good. long as as long as you're living and doing what was what was legal at the time you did it, fine. That's that's all that counts. If they change the zoning, they change the ordinance to what have you, not basically your problem. Although they could say they would like you to do it, you're not obligated to do it. And if you had to fight, you can fight and win. Great. Okay. So the next question here is from Alina, and she couldn't be on the call, so I'm going to ask a question for her. She lives on the other side of the George Washington Bridge in New Jersey. She's been developing relationships with potential sources of funding for real estate projects, but she's only had modest success so far raising funds. So she realizes there could be a lot of reasons for that. But what she's asking, George, is in your experience, what are the characteristics of someone who's best in class at fundraising? What's their mindset? Well, mindset is, is what's your, what's your track record? What's your, what have you done? How, what have you, when you've raised these things, what's the, what can you point to as being a successful what you did in the, in the fundraising area. So you say, okay, I put together the syndicate. We went in this, and it, here's, here's the results. It turned out 15% a year, or what have you. And here are a list of my investors. You can call any one of them. And the, was, you've got to prove your credentials that you have the expertise to build, to be involved with something that's going to be commercially feasible. And you want the investors to go along, go in with it. And it's, if you don't have a track record, it's a, it's a problem. Now, you may be building a track record, as she says, and she doesn't have that. She's had minimal success or some, some success, but then you, on the minimal success, yes, build that into something more than, more than minimal. So the people who have invested up to this now, uh, up, up to this point, at that, use them as your, your, your calling cards, and then you get a testimonial from them. So how does, how do, George, how, how, you know, it begs the age old question, you know, how do you get experience if you can't get an opportunity or get a job, if you will? So how, how does maybe bringing in other people, bringing in more experienced people to partner with you on early deals? Sure. Absolutely. If somebody, you, know, you can go to, there are brokers. In other words, there are brokers which are available to, to you to, that can raise venture capital. They've already got sources the people of, of uh, investors that are looking for investments. You, right. If you so, if you, you associate with them, and they get a piece of the action, not that velvet, for bringing in the capital, so you can pay somebody for bringing in the, bringing in the investors. Now, once you have the investors, you can yeah, use use them as the source for getting more investors. 
that if you were successful, say, in raising $10 million, it's a lot, once, once it's easy now, you want to go to say, all right, I want to go to 50 million. Yeah, if you got 10, you could go to 50. Try to try getting to 10 million with 100,000. Different story. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You have to, you have to work yeah. your way up. Yeah, build now, uh, the, the, this, as far as personal is concerned, I found out very early on the, the lesson of what it is to raise money and how difficult it is. And I had, had, had a good project, a good project. I was buying, I was do, doing mortgages, first mortgage at 16% interest on a good piece of property, guarant- and it was guaranteed by two millionaires, all right? 16%. It was a wow. $35,000 mortgage. It was early on. And when I went, one of the millionaires says, George, I'm going to show you how difficult it is to raise money. And I couldn't believe it until I went and I had some investors that were there. Oh, dear, we'll invest with you happily. And then when the time came for them to write out a check, they, the, the hand got nervous. They couldn't write out the check. <laughs> and it turned out that I couldn't raise the $35,000 from outside investors, except I had my mother-in-law who, who was willing to give me 5000 which was fine. I was short 30000 I went to the bank and I said, here, here's, here's, I have a house. I have a good job. I've got a, I've got a family and it just and I want 30000 and I'll give you security, a mortgage on a good priest property for $35,000 at 16% interest for one year. And the, the, I'll never forget, the bank officer said to me, I don't like to make loans on mortgages. And I said, I didn't ask you for business advice. Am I not worth $30,000 on a hoof? And he said, no. Shocked me to my, I was absolutely devastated. But then I got another bank and they said, oh, yeah, give us the mortgage at that point. And with you signing it, we'll do it. And I did it. And then I started, when I started this point, making the payments, especially my mother-in-law, she started telling all her friends that wanted to invest that she's getting 16% on a, on a piece of property, on a, a mortgage from a son like clockwork. The next investment that I had, everybody wanted to get into. Everybody. And I wouldn't let them in. Because if you if you want to raise if you want to get money from somebody if you don't take it they'll give you all you want. <laughs> That's classic. So now I had it. So the next next mortgage was in it was in the sixty thousand dollars, and I had a doctor who said I'll take the whole thing. I said no, you won't. You can't take sixty thousand. I'll give you fifteen. I want the whole thing. No, fifteen. If you want it, take it. Otherwise, forget it. Fifty later on with the same doctor at that point, I, he invested a couple hundred thousand with me. Every time I, I put a put a put a project together, he was there. Yeah, that's such good advice. It's so practical. That's that's the way you do it. You got to perform, and then you get a reputation. Very yeah. good. Yeah, and from that, yeah, from that, from the more from the making the mortgage investors, the mortgage loans at this, or getting my my investors in the mortgage loans. When I decided I was going to form a, a radio company to do to buy radio stations and build. And the mortgage, the people who were in the mortgages, they were happy to invest because, well, okay, he knows nothing about radio, but he knows everything about investment. Therefore, they, they came along with the, with the money. And they were willing to invest in a brand new project because they trusted the person who was involved, not necessarily the product that was involved, but the person who was, who was involved in the in fostering the project. Yeah, it kind and of highlights exactly, the importance of getting those early projects right. I mean, when you're just starting out. You know, some some of these projects, you, people I see people try to start out with earlier, high risk, and if they mess up, that's that's it. That's a reputation. No question, no question. And what what very often is lost in the transaction is the personal relationship that must be maintained. So it's, so it's just, when I say must be maintained, that you have to speak to these investors and say, look, 
you did this before, it's fine. I'm not calling you a problem. Do you have more money do you want to invest? Are you satisfied with it? Do you want to get out of the project? What what's your what do you want to do, investor? Now, that personal touch is very important because now you're establishing a personal relationship which is above and beyond the business relationship. So he said, I have another project which is coming up, but it's it's probably more, I don't know how much you want to invest, but I'm looking for shares of $50,000 for, for a piece of the project. Is, is, is that something that you would be interested in or not, or more or less or not? So that you, you now basically touch your potential, your investor, to find out what it is that they are looking for or willing to do. Has there been a change in their financial position? Do they got more money? Have they got less money? Would they like out of the money, out of the project they're already in? It's the personal touch, which can be very, very successful and should certainly be done. Now you're, you're not talking to them as an investor, you're talking to them as a friend. It's a whole they, different ballgame. And, right. and that person that you're talking to on a friendly basis is your best salesman for, next, for another investor. Absolutely. I'm dealing, with, I'm dealing with, with John. I love him. At that point, he's interested in what, my, in what I do, what my lifestyle and so forth. And every and he's total understanding and very happy. I get the checks. That's the way you build your reputation. Yeah, that's great. The mindset is is people. It's a people business. It's fabulous. Exactly right. Okay, we got one more question and a few more minutes. So let's get this one out. This one's from Vince. Vince, are you on the line? Yep, I'm on the line. All right, you're up. Ask George. Thanks, Russell. Hey, George, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing fine. Right on. Hey, I'm looking to grow as a business person. In mm-hmm. your experience, what were the things that helped you grow the most? Is it taking a class, working with a mentor, or diving into the deep end on an ambitious project? I certainly have some blind spots that are holding me back. How do I overcome this? Welcome to the club. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Understand uh, this, that, that when I first started in, well, first of all, as far as the, being a lawyer at that point, yes, a real estate lawyer. I had a mentor at that point, somebody that was who was a, a really good real estate lawyer, and he taught me everything basically that he knew that he wanted me to know how to handle clients. Then later on, when I went, and now I went, all of a sudden was thrown into the business world, and I was representing two millionaires on big projects, and I had never represented, a, never done a major project. Never. So now I had to convince myself that, yeah, why not? Why isn't a, an office building very similar, buying an office building very similar to a, buying a one-family house, except you're dealing with a project that's $15 million instead of 50000 And I learned, I said, these multi-millionaires that I was representing are in the real estate business, and they are very successful. And if I want to be in the real estate business, I have to find out what it is that they look for and what it is they do. So I will learn from watching them. And all of a sudden, I found out that the, the, the business of real estate or investing is totally different from the law of real estate, because you have to think as a businessman. Most lawyers don't think a businessman. So I started to learn what it is they were looking for. Was it return? What was it security? What it was, and why they would be interested in certain buildings and not in other buildings. So that was my learning curve. Now, if I had a mentor, I would have loved it, but I didn't. So I had to learn it the hard way, and I did. So what I'm saying is, you want to improve it, go get into an environment where you can learn something. So you got somebody that you that you look up to or knows what they're doing, and and you would emulate what it is they do. If they raise money, how do they raise money? And if you want to, what do they do? 
that gets them to raise money. If they do projects, how do they do projects? If they negotiate, how do they negotiate? These are just how you learn by getting involved with people that have the experience that you're looking to fulfill. Awesome. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Yeah. Classes, classes don't necessarily work, but they, they somewhat do. One thing I would tell you to do, read my books. There you go. Well, I'm a big fan. No, I would say, no, that you got, when I say read my books, I'm not, not facetious, they're saying this. I wrote two books on negotiation. And negotiation to me is very important because you're always negotiating and you want to improve your uh, your performance. If you learn how to negotiate or the the aspects of negotiation, you can do you can do better. So I'm I'm saying not because it's because of the books that I wrote, but I think that you find to be very helpful in guiding you over some spots that may be very difficult in dealing with people that you're you feel uh, you're not capable of working in their in their class. You can learn it. Yeah, I read your book. There's always, Trump, always something to be learned from everybody you meet. Yeah, I read your book, Trump Style Negotiation, Powerful Strategies and Tactics, and also have the audio. Yep. Nice. Good. Well, Thanks good job, Vance. Thanks, Thanks George. George. So we've You're got welcome. a couple more minutes. You want to take on that last question, George? Sure. Okay. So I'm not sure Victor didn't say who it was from, so I'm just going to go ahead and ask it. He wants to know thoughts on using expensive bridge financing on a temporary basis during constructions. Most conventional lenders will only land on, lend on stabilized assets mm-hmm. that yeah. are actually producing revenue. The highest rate for bridge financing, or the high, higher rate interest rate for bridge financing makes it seem expensive, because it is. But in the end, there are a few alternatives. Either pay the expensive rate or don't do the project. So yeah. what, say, what say you, George? First of all, this is, this is typical at that point. Then you go through, yes, you're going to pay more for bridge, bridge financing than you're going to pay for a neighbor stand. Because bridge financing, the point is furnishing the bridge is really taking the risk that you're going to get to the final end. While your, your project is in the process of being completed, you will complete it and you can ultimately get it, there's a, the takeout at the end by the ultimate mortgagee. Now, this is typical and you're going to live with it and it's not bad living with it. However, one of the things that I found that's very often ignored is to make a, a real effort in shortening construction time. Right. And one of the things that do do that Donald did this on a regular we did it on a regular basis. When we have a contract, we would give him a bonus if he brought it in early. So it's not you're going to be penalized if you don't finish it by a certain date. But if you finish it earlier than the certain date, you're going to end up making more money. That's wow. Brilliant. Yeah. All of a sudden, at this point, they worked their tails off to get the bonus. And what was it, what was happening? Your construction time was being condensed because all you had these contractors that were interested in getting it done earlier. When they got it earlier, your bridge loan doesn't cut out for that long. And as a result, you can save a lot of money because you're not paying that exorbitant interest rate for a longer period of time, as well as you've also got contractors that work their tails off to do business for you because you, you you pay them more than they would ordinarily get. That is great. I think yeah. we'll end there on a high note. Thank okay. you, George, very much we're, for we're all of your You're wisdom. welcome. Okay. Good. Appreciate Looking forward to the next one. Yep. It's going to be great. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye now. Bye-bye. There's another monthly edition of the George Ross Mastermind. If you've got a question for George, just send an email to askgeorge at realestateguysradio.com. Make sure you get your questions in at least two days before the next mastermind. Successful syndicating.